Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses and mentorship designed to help clinicians apply a BPS approach to their clinical practice. Check out our up and coming in-person courses this year at tkex.org. Today, we are lucky to be joined by Jilly Bond. Jilly is a pelvic health physio, doctoral researcher, and educator based in Wales. She's worked in both private and public sectors and nowadays owns her own clinic, is a regular presenter at national and international conferences, provides professional mentorship, live and online courses, collaborates on research projects, and is currently completing a PhD on pelvic pain with Brunel University in London and UniSA. We'll be unpacking some of the most common buzzwords in pelvic and bladder pain, such as trigger points, tightness, lengthening, and clarifying some common misconceptions, talking about what we need to do more of as healthcare professionals to improve the care of patients living with pelvic pain. So Jilly, I appreciate you for making the time for us. Well, thanks for having me. The first question, perhaps the most important question, what is your story? I'll keep it, I'll try and keep it brief. <laughs> so I am a physiotherapist and I trained at Nottingham University, went straight into normal physiotherapy rotations um, as a junior, uh, saw everything and very quickly after musculoskeletal fell into uh, pelvic health, which used to be called women's health. It's such a fantastic profession where you hold um, uh, the vulnerability and intimacy of your patients in a way that you don't necessarily in other areas or I didn't experience that I did, um, apart from things like strokes and sometimes and things like peds. Um, but it takes so much for your patients to get through the door with these really intimate, embarrassing, taboo problems. And the treatment for them is pretty straightforward, but it involves a lot of love, care, support, and, and really holding that person uh, and holding space for that person in a way that I didn't find in other areas of physio. So I, I absolutely loved it. Um, and it was a point in my life where I was uh, looking for that connection, I think, anyway. I was particularly uh, a point of vulnerability for me. I'd just survived open heart surgery and lots of heart attacks um, and really found that those uh, sitting in the vulnerability um, in that space with patients was beautiful and it, and it worked for me and it's what I wanted to be doing that deeper connection with patients at that point in my life and and it's something that I find um I think it's it it's uh, it continue continues to be fulfilling uh sitting with people in a way that's a, a lot deeper than you would necessarily just treating their near ankle although that might just be me I'm sure there are very loads of MSK clinicians doing fab work there um, so I did all my junior rotations, stayed in the NHS for kind of eight, eight, nine years, uh, went off and ran a private hospital for a bit and found that I wanted to learn more because none of my questions were being answered sufficiently enough. So I went and did a master's and started to target pelvic pain because it was this within the profession. It was almost this massive, massive deal. And I was just thinking, well, it can't. Why is it elevated to a level of complexity and difficulty that we're not managing it and we're not actively teaching about how to treat it? And it's very bitty, the approach. So I went and, and studied it for my master's and we did some research in patients with um, bladder pain syndrome, which became a bit of a focus. And it still is really. I, I, I think I specialize in visceral pain. Um, thanks to lots of patients that have taught me um, incredible things and patients that we've 
I've struggled through treating and then and, and worked things out along the way. So we did some research in that and it was great. And I started going to international conferences and I became friends with lots of lovely, lovely, um, fan, fab pelvic health researchers from all over the world. Um, and we quickly developed a bit of a group um, trying to push for a, a more joined up thinking around pelvic pain treatment and how we can improve the quality of care that we're giving through evidence-based approaches. And over the last few years and through lockdown, we did um, a few bits and bobs. I've been involved in lots of Delphi's and lots of kind of developments of questionnaires. I've been helping out with other um, pelvic pain research and then very gently was bullied into doing a PhD, which I wanted to do anyway, but it was uh, a very much kind of a, well, the only way that we're going to get more evidence and more, more understanding of these questions we have is for Jilly to go off and spend five to seven years <laughs> looking at them in depth. So I've ended up doing a pelvic pain PhD with Brunel and I'm, I couldn't be happier. It's my, it's definitely my happy space. Talk to me in a couple of years, but I'm having a fantastic time and I've, I've got wonderful supervisors who are really supportive and, um, you know, the amazing Dr. Jane Chalmers, who's just a brilliant brain and wonderful human spearheading the way in pelvic, uh, in pelvic pain research in, um, you know, from definitely from an Australian point of view, but worldwide. So I'm uh, very, very excited to be doing my research. And at the same time, I've uh, toyed around with lots of things, you know, things happen in, in life. Uh, I'm a mother now, which means that I've got a different juggle. And so I'm still doing some clinical, but um, the what everything always came about down to is how can we do this better and how can we do this in a better joined up way? So I'm also in the process of launching the Pelvic Pain Network with my colleague, uh, Virginia's River, Virginia Rivers Bulkley, um, which is going to be a UK wide um, a network to join up that treatment across medical professionals, but, but specifically within physio, but um, allowing patients to have much better joined up care in a way that we haven't been able to achieve in the NHS or private practice yet. Uh, so, yeah, I've got got my passion projects on the go. Wow. And how many years into your PhD are you in? If I'm One. Hence why I'm probably particularly excited still. So, yeah, we should do a, but, another one further down the track. Yeah, exactly. Compare. You know, we're, we're kind of, we're two, we're, uh, second project is up and running um, of four. So we'll see where we get to. But um, yeah, I'm still really enjoying it. And I'm enjoying the, the community that um, there's so much wonderful science going on. Um, and it's it's really lovely to be part of a community of people. It's, you know, my people. Yeah, And the collaboration is so satisfying as well to to meet up with like-minded passionate clinicians and researchers who share similar values there's so much great work out there absolutely and, and within pelvic pain and pelvic health um there is an openness and a willingness to co to collaborate in a way that i haven't seen in areas of private practice or in other ways so and even within education most people because i do a lot of teaching i taught after the masters i um because there wasn't really any any courses in the UK covering how to treat visceral pain or approaches to more biopsychosocial approaches to pain and how to assess it. Um, and even within education, it can be quite siloed. So in research, it's this joyful world where everyone's like, oh, that's cool. You're looking at that. That's really interesting. Why not join yeah. along? And that scientific exploration, the curiosity, that says a lot. And hopefully it's kind of maybe inspires people to go down the the research route as well as an option if they're if they're keen at. oh absolutely i'm i'm forever coming up against people that 
just say oh I can do a PhD and I was like if you can do a master's you can do a PhD you just need to have the right support in place and a plan um it's just you know putting it in your head that it's going to be a much longer period of time and it's going to be you know you need to work it in a different way but certainly I'm I'm really enjoying it it's it, it gives to my life it doesn't take from it so yeah everyone come and do a PhD with me it's good fun and uh, out of curiosity, what kind of, you mentioned that you were curious, you want some answers to questions, that's what drove you along to get a master's into a PhD. What kind of questions or topics and kind of areas are you looking into? Well, yeah, I'll go point everyone to go and look at um, Katie Kelly's work, who's my um, unofficial research wife, uh, one of several. Um, very lucky to know her. She, Katie and I have, she's Canadian, um, and we have spent the last eight years trying to toy with concepts around translating graded motor imagery into pelvis and pelvic pain. Um, I'm good friends with Sandy Hilton and obviously Karen Van Dyken as well. And they really spearheaded that back in, I don't know, 20, I think 2011 was their paper um, where they first put in a pathway that included graded motor imagery concepts. Now, Katie and I are pretty clear that it's not GMI in the pelvis because there are certain aspects that aren't relevant. Um, and she's been toying around with kind of vulvodynia patients and looking at which images might be relevant and has done some really interesting work there. And I know Jane, Dr. Jane Chalmers really wanted to look at GMI and she is putting in, uh, she will be doing some more work looking at GMI type stuff, which I am currently, I mean, the, the words change, but currently calling it graded sensory motor learning, because I think it has to have a, an element of learning and the sensory motor is in there somewhere. Um, but but for example, pr uh, principles around laterality may not be as important within the perineum or pelvis of of, of either of any genders, um, and that is, you know, that is something we're also wrestling with. But anyway, um, so there's some stuff going on in that world, but what we don't have is any of the baseline. So we don't know if there are sensory motor changes that occur in the perineum or the pelvic region of anyone with pelvic pain. We know that there are. Um, in uh, complex regional pain syndrome and in low back pain and in prolonged foot pain or persistent foot pain, we have that evidence, but we haven't um, really brought it together from a pelvic pain point of view. And there is stuff out there. Um, there's more than enough for me to be I'm doing a scoping review at the moment um, and it's just getting bigger and bigger. And I think I'm well over a hundred page papers in this scoping review. So there is lots of stuff out there. But what we're going to be doing in my PhD is answering the question of do we have sensory motor distortion in female in in um, yeah female patients with persistent pelvic pain? So looking at across the broad spectrum, which is huge through endometriosis all the way through to vaginismus, vulvodynia, vestibulodynia, um, bladder pain syndrome, everything. Do we get any of these sensory motor changes? Because it's important. And once we found out whether or yes or no, then we can say right can we target this as a way of working with someone's pain experience that may change their pain in a way that doesn't hurt them? Because we're doing this anyway. So clinically, there was a patient a while ago who a good eight, nine, nine years ago, when I first started talking to Katie, who had a 46 year history of pelvic pain following the delivery of her second child. She was sent to me with standard physio referral from the gynecologist she's got prolapse symptoms rocks up with 46 year history of pelvic pain not able to have intimacy not able to be comfortable in herself raging pain and I assessed her only twice over nine months and we spent that time 
looking around concepts of education around her anatomy, um, discussing her dissociation with it. I've got some elements of um, psychosexual training and, and kind of other bits that are within my scope because I've done a bit more training in that way. And um, we did a basic graded motor imagery style rehabilitation where I took her through images of people with pelvises clothed and unclothed mm. and then much more specific kind of location acuity um, work and her pain went away and she still she maintains uh she has to do stuff to look after herself because she has fibromyalgia um which I I think when someone is in a persistent pain state and their pain mechanisms and their their the way that their body manages themselves with persistent threat for so long makes sense but it was quite shocking how effective it was because this this is a lady that when I you know you do your standard blah 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 education bring out your pelvis to say this is where everything is you're going to be okay um and she couldn't even look at the pelvis because it made her feel sick queasy anxious she wasn't able to um change her granddaughter's nappy because it made her feel sick she her husband laughed he was in the room and he said oh she's just a prude she's always been a prude but it wasn't that it was more than that and I discussed it with her and that is actually that it gave her physiological sensations that were noxious so she avoided any kind of contact with any pelvic region or looking at it thinking about it touching it so breaking those barriers down suddenly her pain wasn't an issue anymore and I haven't seen her in about five or six years but she last time we spoke she was having normal um, comfortable uh, pleasant intercourse she was able to wear swimsuits again she hadn't been able to wear tight clothing she was also not finding it an issue to look after the newest grand grandbabies so you know huge huge changes so uh, the research we're doing is trying to set a baseline in understanding sensory motor change if distortions occur how they occur so um do we have patterns more in in certain things i have suspicions but I also I have suspicions of certain conditions that are a bit more viscerally heavy. There may be um, at higher levels of distortion. Certainly in clinically, we may see more changes in vestibular dynia, vulvodynia than say endometriosis. But I suspect what we're going to find is a, a scale or a spectrum in all people experiencing different things in different ways. So that's going to be really interesting. And I've, yeah, I've got a good team helping me to <laughs> frame my thoughts and work it out. The the step on from that and the, the postdoc, which we're already planning is how do we then take our knowledge and start to apply interventional models to change it? So what images are interesting? Uh, can we change sensory motor distortion by doing stuff with people in the same way that it's been shown? I mean, the Resolve trial recently, um, with Dr. Ben Wand, um, who's kind of also helping out occasionally with our stuff he that that big back trial looking at sensory motor uh retraining as well as back rehabilitation and chronic back pain has made a massive step forward in kind of understanding what's possible and that these things can occur so we would be looking to applying that but you know that's give me five to seven years see what we work out <laughs> super interesting and the potential practical implications of how many people that could help yeah, across that that pelvic pain uh, spectrum would be massive. So yeah, very interesting to to hear and, and learn some of the perhaps the mediating factors where possible to 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 gain and to learn um, about what uh, helps those treatment effects. Uh, 
different type of question now looking to trigger points because like, I guess it's it's a, an area that, that I, I feel you've progressed from and you probably have a different framework or different words even narratives describing trigger point or trigger point therapy if we start with a definition what do we know from the research about what trigger points are because i know i have knots in my kind of trap region and you can't tell me that they don't exist because i can feel them but what do we know about what they actually are we, we don't know what they are, sorry to bust in, but we, we know what they're not. So the the classic definition being that they are a hyper-irritable bundle of muscle spindles with a motor end plate attached that's causing this um, huge localised contraction of the muscle spindles, which causes or is thought to cause pain through a, a metabolic issues of not being able to get enough oxygen to the tissues causing this kind of nagging pain but then also potential tension and, and physiological mechanical um drivers of having this position tension but we have had um ultrasound studies that show absolutely no change so when they look and they scan the actual knots where people palpate them the muscle fibers look similar um and they've done really specialized um, I can never say the word viscera. It's not viscoelastic, but they've got specialized ultrasound scanners that look at those fibers. We've got EMG studies that look at electrical activity at a knot and at the rest of the muscles. And what they find is that the electrical activity and the signatures of the region are similar to end plate noise. So there isn't any heightened activity. We've also got microdialysis. So people have done these tiny um, kind of drainage of uh, chemicals in the region so they go into a knot and they suck out all the chemicals and what they find is not chemicals associated with metabolic stress um, but chemicals associated with um, localized peripheral nerve inflammation and finally we have the best examination in the world all this wonderful um, kind of much more human specific how do we examine how do we assess for trigger points which is based on the skilled assessor model where um where they talk about this uh, this concept of i could never say it, but par paradalia where if you look for something you will find it and i can def i can i can absolutely with, with honesty tell you that for about eight years when i dropped this kind of concept of trigger points within my mind i haven't felt it i haven't felt once a trigger point not in a pelvic floor for easily eight years we know from the skilled assessor um, work, if you give very highly skilled trigger point assessing um, therapists a limb and say there is a uh, knot that have been or trigger points that have been assessed previously in them, find them, they're not great. If you tell them there is a knot, there is a trigger point in this upper fibre of trapezius, find it, they find it. And these are the skilled assessors and there are a good four or five papers um, showing that so we we don't really have a handle on what it is I'm not denying that the experience exists that if you press on one area that's sore it can refer like in the traps is a really common one to neck pain and head pain but what my issue with trigger point is is not just my my email inbox but that's a big factor so because I'm online I get at least 14 emails a week from people all over the world saying please tell me where my trigger points are so I can tell the surgeon to cut them out. If my surgeon wants to know where to inject my pelvic floor muscles, 
because I'm in loads of pain and I need to know where these trigger points are causing the pain. Should I have these injections? So trigger points are this kind of really, really pathologized nocebo type language, because if you when you interact with someone and you make them feel better and you tell them it's because there's a trigger point and I'm going to get rid of it. The next time that they have that pain, they have to come back to you to get rid of it. And you might treat, teach them ways to get rid of it. But then what happens if they have pain again? It, they, they always have this reason that's pathologized. Now, my body is riddled with these knot type tension places um, and they aren't necessarily bad. They're quite normal. So there's some some really lovely uh, evolutionary type evidence showing that we potentially get we have to have areas of, of slightly heightened, uh, increased transiently increased tone. Um, where you can move a force around a corner. So if you think about the muscle in your thumb, we always get a, a, a knot quite often in your writing hand. I've got a bit of a more tension in this area than I have on my non-dominant hand. And that's because we've got to translate a force from going in one direction to another direction. So around a corner, we need to have something to hang off to, to, to send the force around the corner. It's the same in your traps. You've got forces going laterally towards your neck and then forces going up your neck. In the pelvic floor, we have the perineum to achieve that, a slightly different textured bit of tissue that, that translates force and everything hangs off. So my issue with, with the theory of trigger point is that it's it doesn't serve patients. And this is why I love science. So I wrote a paper in <laughs> 2013, 2014, my original master's research, the, the, big, the big one that came out of it, um, talking about how we uh, used self-management of trigger points with a wand and how that really improves patient outcomes long-term because self-treatment is, is vital. Um, and we've moved on in that language. So I'm very happy to stand in front of people when I'm teaching Reiki and say, yeah, I got it wrong. I don't disagree of the method and the mechanism of what we were doing, but I certainly think that what I was telling patients was probably more problematic and doesn't serve them in the long-term in, in being confident and moving forwards um out of their pain experience it's just it's it's now we know more I think it's a bit more of a lazy narrative and so the answer to people then always ask me well what do you say I just say well this bit is a bit sore isn't it so let's try and see if we can make it a bit more comfortable that's you know clears my in inbox um, by not having that but I think the the evidence is pointing towards areas that are more actively um painful as being inflamed peripheral nerves where you know much more about it and i think predictive processing and if you want to go right down the kind of the new papers there um there's a there's a lot in that that you can uh put into trigger point theory and understanding of why tissues may be more sensitized but certainly if like if you're a trigger point therapist i'm not saying you're wrong because everyone gets people better we do it in different ways it's just how we talk about things what we say to our patients is very important certainly when you're when you're working with people in persistent pain and the history of trigger point theory is really problematic it's you know what two people thought when they worked with an american president for a short period of time and i was certainly brought up on these posters you know when i was training posters on the walls showing you if you press on this and it refers there if they've got this pattern of referral it's from this trigger point but that that was absolutely made up experiential stuff from two people so we're, we we need to have better science and if you're 
a super duper believer in them great go out and do some better science that shows that they exist or what they are they said that the the phenomenon definitely exists but we cannot say that it's that hyper irritable bundle of muscle spindles that's just a theory and it's disproven the spots are still sore or sensitive and the methodologies can still help people but for different reasons and then knowing what we know now through the process of trying to prove ourselves wrong or prove our theories wrong rather we can update our narratives for the benefit for probably more effective outcomes especially long term when it comes to patient self-management absolutely absolutely and that goes with everything that we do hold loosely to your theories is one of the things that my one of my best lecturers at uni said to me once uh, said to all of us and i think it's really key um mm. we've got to move with the science and and with experiential learning but um with experiential learning you'll be really cautious of the the of what you correlate to the causes to be or what the stories that you tell people around them are. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't deal with trigger points, but I don't talk about them as trigger points. I don't think they're a thing we need to worry about. It's tender. So the, the Frawley paper 2021, and Frawley put together a team that looked at definitions within pelvic pain and pelvic health. And one of the definitions they've, they've changed is they use the word tender spot, which is lovely because it's just a definition of of um, symptoms yeah and it's still validating that person's experience of they have a tender spot yeah. but it makes such a difference i think it kind of takes away that pathologizing medicalizing nature of that term trigger point it's like that yeah. sounds quite dangerous um and there can be negative connotations to that and if you google search tender spot versus trigger point i feel like the former might be a little bit more helpful, at least hopefully guide them towards more helpful sources or explanations. There's a few other buzzwords that I've heard commonly in pelvic pain, and they're involving tension, tightness, lengthening, I've heard mm. from clients, activity, and hypertonic or hypotonic. They're quite a long list. So wherever yeah. you'd like to start and... <laughs> I think even starting from a similar point of what we don't know might be helpful. Yeah, well, they, they are all um, one and the same in this kind of uh, terminology around what what do we know about the pelvis and how the pelvic floor, which goes to all muscles really, um, work. And within pelvic, pelvic health is a good 20 years behind musculoskeletal. Uh, the concepts that are coming through now, um, we were you know we were batting off and, and seeing the end of an msk that isn't a bad thing that's the normal evolution of how medicine works and science and things moves on but we, we're stuck with these words i am a word pedant um but that's just because as a researcher you it's really important that we're all using the same terminology so that we can discover things about the same thing so my um my chief area of research is bladder pain syndrome which i will say as bladder pain syndrome it has been called many different things. It's got about 15 different names. And we're in a 10-year transition from calling it interstitial cystitis to bladder pain syndrome. And in the research and literature, it's called IC slash BPS to capture everybody so that when somebody does a trial, um, I can read it, even though I will only ever be searching bladder pain syndrome. But again, we've got you know half, half the world are calling it bladder pain syndrome, BPS, easy to remember, and half are calling it painful bladder syndrome which again means that your, your search terms have to be big. Anyway, so when we're, when we're talking about 
words in medicine they make a massive uh, a massive difference they're very important because firstly we need to make sure that we're all using the same definitions for known fact and secondly we need to make sure that the the words we use reflect the narrative we know to be true so tone tension hyperactivity again i'll refer every everyone back to the forley paper for helena forley team did a really good job on um looking at definitions and giving us a framework that allows us to be saying the same thing so hypertonicity has become a big buzzword in pelvic pain over the last five to seven years it just means it's possibly a little bit when when people palpate they don't palpate they they feel like the tension in the tissues is not as soft and squidgy as it should be but maybe also that it's not moving through its range of motion and maybe when it does move through its range of motion it's not doing it smoothly and it doesn't have the power behind it to do that movement and lift and support the pelvic organs so you can see that i've defined it in four different ways that people can use that one word for but actually they describe functions and movements of the of the muscle so my my friend rachel warman um wrote a fab paper really really good paper review on tone in pelvic pain but generally in, in muscle tone and i 2023 warman 2023 go and read it whenever i've spoken to her about tone she's always made it really clear to be simple and just describe what you are actually observing describe the observation so if you're looking at, if you're saying and it's hard when you're you know when you're new to the area or you're coming into this concept that the muscle can't isn't just weak that sometimes it's too active or it's doing too much describe which part of the doing too much is the problem is it that it doesn't relax is it a non-relaxing pelvic floor is it that it doesn't through move through the full range of motion is it that it hasn't got the power or strength as we would say to be able to resist your finger or, or in a certain range or lift things try and be a bit more specific in how you define things the word hyperactivity um we have replaced in our parlance with the term from Freud's paper which is increased transient tone so when we think about tone and again I know Rachel's working on this a bit more so um this will probably change <laughs> by, the, by the time that this comes out um keep keep an eye on Rachel's papers and her team she's doing fab stuff it, it seems like it's very very pedantic and I love it because it is it's you know which words do we need to be using and why what is the evidence uh so yeah with with tone um Frawley paper the new ICS definitions we're only going to use hyperactivity or hypoactivity in our neurological patients so those patients with stroke MS um, any other kind of neurological Parkinson's condition we'll use those terms for but the rest of our majority of our patients we're going to talk about whether tone is increased or decreased and if that tone is transient or persistent um, or static um, and I quite like that uh, Rachel I think uses a different term I can't remember which one it is at the end of her paper but she's got more coming out but that that's quite nice because it gives you a um it, it defines it as transient because in our, our pain or our you know postnatal people think that women have have a baby and end up with a really really soggy pelvic floor but a third of women come through with an overactive so an increased transient tone pelvic floor because you just had a trauma to that area it can be tight and it can be non-moving non-relaxing not able to 
deform through its shape to lift and support. So changing how we think about those terms a little bit more specifically and defining what you are actually observing is the important part. Um, activity, Rachel keeps telling me we cannot write down that we are testing the activity of a muscle unless we're doing EMG studies. So if you've got your EMG out, great, you can write that down. You can say that you observe the activity. But if you aren't and you're doing it with your finger palpation, which is what I do nine times out of 10 in clinic, then we're going to look at muscle movement, excursion, those kind of observations, which the modified Oxford grade, which is what pelvic health physios use, does not sufficiently cover. So you need to use more descriptive terms. And it's absolutely fine to use common parlance descriptive terms as long as you're being clear that this is what I have observed. So I will commonly use um, range of movement within quarter phases because that's how my brain works. And that's what I see when I have, um, obviously you're doing musculoskeletal in a cave is what Sandy Hilson calls it. So you can't actually see what's going on. Um, I have a cave in my mind, which I, is a great proprioceptive thing that I can see when I palpate someone. Um, but we go through in quarter phases. Dr. Ruth Jones published a, a really nice score for compression of the urethra, which kind of gives you an inner range score. But apart from that, describe what you're seeing. The lengthening one annoys me because you can't lengthen a muscle unless you add sarcomeres. Yeah, so you need to eat some food and, and get more bits of muscle and stick them on the end. What we're doing is relaxing to its um, uh, its resting state, its, its normal resting state length, however you want to discuss that. But we're not creating muscle length, we're relaxing it. So we're reducing activity, um, in, you know, reducing spasm, whatever you want to talk about. So lengthening of the pelvic floor, um, I don't think is a, is a word that reflects what we're actually doing. Um, you'd have to be applying lots of stretch for a long period of time and eating food. Uh, so maybe pregnancy is a lengthening state of the pelvic floor. Okay, so that would be like a, a good use of it. Those, I think that is related to tightness. And I, I feel like that's a commonly uh, used term for across patients when they're, they're told that they're too tight as well. And that, again, that's a very similar um, argument that I would make to hypertonicity in that tightness, again, we are, uh, we have elements of our viscoelastic structures and we have our elements of our more fascial structures. So tension is, is built on two different active and passive states um, of our tissues working together. And unless you're measuring those different states separately, I don't think you can talk about tension. Rachel goes into this much more in her paper and I can't remember all the clever things she says, but um, she's really clever to so read it. Um, but yeah, tension is something I won't use unless it's a word that a patient says. So this is all about uh, me being a pedant about how you write down what you what you are assessing and how you communicate that with the uh, with the colleagues that you have and our con you know our consultants and things like that. What you say to the patient is what makes sense to them and that doesn't give them a narrative or an understanding of what's going on that's going to be in any form of nocebo. So if someone says, yeah, I feel really tight, I'd go, okay, yeah, I can feel you feel tight there. Yeah, that that does. Okay, let's see if we can make that feel loose or whatever it needs to be, or calmer or green, whatever patients say that makes them uh, that that reflects that they feel happier. But tension again um, doesn't reflect what you're saying about it. It doesn't say, well, is it tense at outer range? Is it tense at inner range? Is it lack of movement? Is it lack of stability? Is it not? Uh, is that tension 
actually that they are what you mean by tension is that they have a lack of synergy in their muscle activation so that the the muscle is tense are you saying the tension is posteriorly which is really common in in prolapse we'll see a lot of overactivity um what i'm now going to call increased transient tone so we have increased transient tone at the posterior element of the pelvic floor which puts a great deal more pressure into that pelvic space and then they might ex, uh, have more sister seal so front anterior aspect compartment um, prolapse symptoms of, of bulging or heaviness or pressure so actually what you mean by tension in that in that moment is going to be very different in how you treat a persistent pelvic pain tension so let's get a bit better about describing actually what we mean it doesn't need to be complex make it make it really super simple and just use the terms that actually describe the observations that you're having and this is important amongst colleagues so there's uh, the same language is being used and yeah. when a when a patient uses their own language we're going to use their own language and what they mean and validate that yeah yeah so like you know if you translate it into the shoulder and someone has got a a cuff injury um if you wrote down shoulder tension what do you actually mean do you mean that the scap um the scap isn't actually moving because it's held fixed so you would say well there's no up rotation on the scapula do you mean that they you know they're not able to abduct we're, we're pretty good at having descriptions in musculoskeletal and we're getting there in pelvic health and it's just because the way um you know I, the way i was taught uh, had very limited thoughts around these concepts but as more research is coming out showing the details and the depth of actually where we can go to with the pelvic floor and within the whole pelvic space and obviously externally we're getting better at, at being more specific yeah it's super fascinating and you mentioned that there's a bit of a there's differences in the msk compared to the, the pelvic pain sectors and that might be a historical kind of difference and the way that the methodology of teaching or the curricula takes a bit of time there's a bit of lag time to to uptake to change these words that have been embedded within the teaching programs for so long across so many different locations the universities yeah absolutely we move on to the in general common misunderstandings and misconceptions i'm curious to hear what you've heard when it comes to pelvic pain and bladder pain syndrome specifically from clinicians the biggest one that um and i i can i know i can track its history and know where it kind of comes from and i understand having come through that education myself as well but the one uh that i always see when i'm teaching when i'm talking with um, mentees and clinicians is that they'll start discussing someone's pelvic pain in any which way that it is if it's bladder pain if it's ibs if it's endometriosis and they'll talk about their pelvic floor being uh, having reduced movement, reduced relaxation, increased transient tone. Um, and the way in which they talk assumes that the tension is the cause of pain. And it's a, this is why we're in this massive hyper, hypo um, activity, hyperactivity of the pelvic floor phase at the moment is that everyone's latching onto that hyperactivity is not useful. It's pretty normal in most sports people. And actually being someone that teaches a lot, it's also pretty normal in most physios <laughs> because we're doing so much activity. Physios tend to be pretty fit people that do stuff um, in the gym or any, you know, any form of exercise. And I, I wouldn't, in the vast majority of people that have quite an active 
pelvic floor that may be non-relaxing at rest, um, and certainly during an assessment, it doesn't mean they've got pain. So the the big misconception for me um, is that pain or tension equals pain. Tension and pain are two separate symptoms of a persistent pelvic pain disorder or condition that commonly occur together. And the minute that you break those apart, you can start having much, much more in-depth clinical reasoning that doesn't blame yourself for not achieving X, Y, Z in your patient. So it's it's often the case I'll see people say, well, I've done like three or four sessions in a row where I've relaxed their pelvic floor, but they're still in pain. And I'll go, great. So what do you think is going on with their pain? But their pelvic floor is getting, you know, their pelvic floor is fine. And when they come into clinic, I get it relaxed really quickly now. Great, but they're still in pain. So what are we doing to address the pain? Um, reducing the tone of the pelvic floor is a really beautiful way of having a conversation with the nervous system locally by putting your hands on, getting hands on with that area and in a non-painful way, it should be relaxed and gentle. It doesn't need to hurt. We've moved beyond these kind of aggressive trigger pointing techniques now. Um, if we can do it gently in a calm way, we can teach that area that it's not necessarily under threat and there is a potential for it to be a different way. It can have a novel, novel, new, lovely sensory information that helps to calm everything down and helps to reduce their pain. But relaxing the pelvic floor is not going to be the be all and end all of changing that pain state potentially. In some people it is, but in, in the majority of people, you, you've got to be looking to the whole of them. So um, it's, it's one of those big leaps that I took certainly as um, when I came up through initial it's those concepts that you get as when you're first starting out that are really hard to get rid of that you hold to so I was certainly trained in that kind of heavy trigger pointing um period of time and you know you've got to get it's they're in pain because their pelvic floor is tight but you know tension and spasm is a really natural response to pain who's saying that the pelvic floor is the egg and not the chicken you know so questioning those uh, and you'll see this lots i know in, in patients uh, Melanie moran's team over in canada are doing some really they've done over um lockdown some really interesting work around incontinence that's been kind of mind-blowing to me because of the school of physio that i was taught through and understandings that i had around continence and they're kind of going yeah there's probably not much to do with the pelvic floor uh, which is really hard for me to move beyond as a concept because that was a core concept of my training. But, you know, I'm I'm trying <laughs> on a daily basis to understand why that's not the case and to move beyond it. And I think with tension and pain, we need to do that. They're not they're not um, correlate. They're not causative. They are correlated as things that occur commonly together. Um, and you, we should be treating both. The minute that you take the pressure off yourself to the you should be achieving pain reduction by changing um, tension tone in their pelvic floor is the minute that you go, okay, there's a lot more to this that I can do. And the world becomes your oyster. A lot more opportunities to help the person in different ways. And in, in I guess more of a zoomed out perspective. And just to clarify that last research was Moran, was it? Yes. And that was in relation to to incontinence, urinary incontinence and pain not correlating? Uh, no, no. Um, so the classic pelvic floor 
teaching is that, um, and this is not for patient ears because it's still the narrative I give out because I think it's a helpful narrative. Um, but is that if this is the front of the pelvic floor, the pelvic floor lifts and it becomes a bowl from like this to a bowl up and forward. And by doing so, it creates urethral overpressure. It squeezes. We have a urinary sphincter that also squeezes to stop you from passing water. And one of the key mechanisms of urinary incontinence is that your pelvic floor is a bit naff and going, oh, and not lifting and not creating that urethral overpressure. But Melanie's team, um, and there's some really cool folk out there um, that I follow. So if you follow the people I follow on Instagram, you'll find them. Um, they found that pelvic floor is pretty much nothing to do with it in the study sample they had. And they think it's much more all to do with um, urethral sphincter pressure and again, talking when I had a little quick chat with um, my researching friends, including Rachel, they said, well, it's to do with more hydrostatic pressure potentially, and that kind of lymph pressure around the urethral sphincter. So when we do pelvic floor training, we're also, we know we're training the urethral sphincter, which is a smooth muscle, which isn't as active consciously. Um, and that might be the mechanism by which we create huge change. I don't at the moment think that telling people that their pelvic floor isn't working optimally and that's why we're training it is a bad narrative um but certainly for those patients and I've had them the few over the years that you think well you've got excellent pelvic floor movement why are you incontinent or the opposite you've got half range pelvic floor why are you fully continent and able to get onto a trampoline and bounce around when we've done six or eight weeks of training your pelvic floor hasn't improved that much, but your continence has improved vastly. So that would begin to explain those situations. Um, whether or not, you know, how, how how I change what I say to my patients will depend on what they come out with next. But they did a really lovely logical series of, um, of trials over lockdown, which were really interesting. And Very presented, interesting. I don't think they're published yet, but they presented some of them recently. There's a lot of changes I'm hearing in uh, some of the the words that we use in our understanding of the mechanisms behind what's actually causing that change. Super interesting. And I'll grab those um, any Instagrams or any other names yeah. for the show notes as well. And um, so looking at some of the overall aspects of pain management, pelvic pain management, um, we've talked about now there's different narratives that we can use that are more in line with our current understanding and to hold them loosely as well as new evidence emerges. What are some of the important aspects of pelvic pain care that we often overlook as clinicians? So my bias, my answer would be that we need to look at the whole person. Um, and that's because I have a very much of a biopsychosocial view. We have moved a long way towards this over the last few years. But one of the things that we are, and I think we're kind of getting there. We were wrestling as biopsychosocial came through as a concept. There was an almost an element of blaming the patient for the psychosocial elements of their pain and saying and identifying them, but they're not doing anything about it. So saying well, this person has significant anxiety and depression, and that's why they're not improving. We're identifying it, but we're not helping them with it. There are elements of that that are within our scope as physiotherapists, and Carolyn Van Dyken has a fantastic course um, with her company, Reframe Rehab, where she identifies all of the things that we can be looking for, 
and then how we can use effective and appropriate screening tools to uh, identify the issues and then what is within scope of practice as a physiotherapist to improve those things because it isn't all on our shoulders we do have a multidisciplinary team that we should be using but looking to patients that have high well, it's very common to have um high levels of anxiety and depression in, in persistent pain we know that's a, a very common thing across all pathologies and if we've got anxiety and depression what can we do about it yes we can be sending them to our counsellors and we can be looking at uh, within community uh, support from charities from community groups but we can also be looking really simply at things like cardiovascular exercise so there is a focus in pelvic health specifically on the biological and this is where we're kind of we're catching up with musculoskeletal in some way that yes in musculoskeletal you are expected there's an expectation if that person comes in with shoulder pain you look at their shoulder whereas in pelvic health you know we've still got that expectation if someone comes in with pelvic pain you look at their pelvis you look at their pelvic floor which may not always be appropriate if they're in a significant amount of pain but we also need to be moving into the if that person comes in with shoulder pain we ask them what's happening with life how are they and using appropriate screening tools to achieve that can save time and can improve your clinical outcomes and the speed at which you you can make change with people or if they are in that phase of wanting to change and wanting to move forward now uh, dr jane chalmers made the the 3psq as a response to that so um which is a fab tool carolyn and uh Judith and I were talking about the fact that we have all of these things that we want to look at in, in a patient, but that requires, you know, a researcher's brain of putting 13 to 15 um, questionnaires in front of someone is appropriate. It's not appropriate in clinical practice. And in, in some of the pain clinics I've worked in, we will do lots of really in-depth stuff beforehand when they come before a patient comes in. But what Jane did with um, a Delphi process is bring together uh, one representative validated question for each measure. So there is helplessness and rumination and magnification and um, insomnia and um, stress and anxiety, depression. There are 13 different measures and then there are a couple of measures of trauma, um, adverse childhood events, that kind of stuff. Uh, and what that does is it means that you have one piece of paper where you can screen for everything that we know has a significant impact on the outcome of someone having physiotherapy with persistent pelvic pain. It's the pelvic pain psychological screening questionnaire, three PSQ. That's a really good place to start. And I make sure that I do that with every patient. And for some people it's more relevant than others. You know, I've got patients at the moment who are really struggling with menopause symptoms. And that's why they have these vulvodynia symptoms. And they've been sent to me at the age of 37 with significant vulvodynia and dyspareunia pain with intercourse. Um, I have assessed one of my ladies this week after seeing her three or four times, but really her, her symptoms of anxiety and well, anxiety and low mood driven by her menopausal symptoms are the things that need to be addressed first. And that will then change how active and how normalized and how comfortable the tone and activity of her pelvic floor is and how the whole of her vulval area is. So uh, we need to stop necessarily going straight for the biology yes i do it day in day out i will assess someone's pelvic floor and their pelvic region and their back and the hips and all the rest of it like we do 
but I will also spend a lot of time getting to know that person and asking them what's going on I've got another lady who had a really lovely response to um uh, kind of some internal work I try and get patients doing it as quick as possible for themselves if they can she was able to engage with her pelvic floor it wasn't too painful to begin with but she got rid of her eight out of ten cyclical pain um but really every time she comes back to me and she still keeps coming it's because she needs to talk about self-care and how she doesn't prioritize herself in her life and she needs to have a plan of action and she'll come in and say can I just talk again yes of course she can um so we, we're talking about stress management and she's running a business and how, how can we um how can we build a life that's not going to end up with a really unhappy pelvic floor potentially from the level of stress and and lack of self-care so I would I would say the overlooked bit in pain management is looking to the person not just the condition it's one of the reasons I left the NHS um unfortunately the team that I was in I kept <laughs> being palmed off because I'd say well I you know why have you moved this person from your MSK day to your pelvic health day well this person had was a youngish lady who had low back pain and I was highly suspicious because you get a bit of spidey senses when you work in pelvic pain um highly suspicious that I needed to have some conversations with her to make sure she was safe I was not going to have those in cubicles with curtains I wanted to do it behind a door um and they said but she's a back and I was like she's not a back <laughs> she is a person and this is her name um and I think we need to move away from that so we, we are highly biomedically trained which is brilliant and yes it's a big part of it I don't want us to ever move away from having those wonderful hands-on skills when everyone was you know when it was becoming really unfashionable in um, musculoskeletal to be hands-on with chronic pain patients persistent pain patients um, we were still doing it in pelvic health and I stand by that to this day because it can be game-changing by introducing comfortable novel um, sensation to an area that is so intimate and um, there's a huge amount of fear and lots of stuff going on. The psychology of what we do is greater than I think what we do with our actual hands um, and that's why it's important but we haven't moved we haven't moved across enough into working with our patients in a, a truly whole body way and I think that is just a hangover of you know pelvic health is something that you do in a room by yourself with a closed door so it's hard and um, you know, I challenge everybody that comes on my courses to get out of their room and try and take their prolapse patient in the gym or you know clothed <laughs> that's the important bit but getting our patients into the gym and doing stuff in the same way that you would with your MSK patients getting out of our room is important and treating the whole person that's it it's a there's a human attached to the pelvis to the back to the shoulder and addressing the whole person and what they need and, and maybe shifting our context where needed I think looking at how our environment can shape the decisions that we make and I really liked that the stress can be physiological the anxiety can have effects on the body so it's I think we, we kind of forget that and we can build on our current biomedical or body as machine kind of knowledge that we have that's great we, we need to keep that and then layer on top maybe some communication skills maybe some psychologically informed skill sets which I know you cover in your course and mentorship so looking kind of um give a segue for the next question for the last question if looking at some of those skill sets that clinicians need 
more of. What would you say as maybe starting points, I'm thinking, for clinicians who are interested in, in learning more about, you mentioned like psychosocial screening tools, the research is out there, but then the application, the practical element, there can be still that gap between theory and practice. What, what would be some of your recommendations for starting points? Well, when you've got to the point where you've got down your subjective assessment in your head and you've got down an objective. So, you know, you know, I, when I was starting out, I used to go in with like um, post-it notes inside my technical looking books, just as a list of the things that I had to remember to cover. When you've got that down and you're you kind of, you're really on board with knowing what you've got to do, then comes the process of refining it and improving your interaction with your patient. There is so much to be learnt. Um, that can speed up your appointments but also can speed up how effective you are in uh, engaging with that patient we bang on about stuff like the patient and um, therapist relationship the you know therapeutic relations that kind of stuff but really it's about um, learning how to listen and properly listen so there's some fantastic um courses all over the place uh about narrative assessments where you basically put your pen down and let people talk which is a really simple thing to learn. But if you don't put your pen down, people will keep talking at you until they have said what they want to say. And physios on average, I think it's something we butt in between two and eight seconds. Um, yeah, but tell me, was it when you bent over? Yeah, was that four out of 10? You know, just put your pen down, let someone speak. When they finish speaking, repeat to them what they have said, um, even in summary form. I'd always say, okay, so let make sure that I've got this right is this is what I'm hearing, blah, 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 blah. That is a massive key part of building that relationship. So if you can get yourself on any of the um, narrative assessment or um, motivational interviewing courses where you learn the, the key aspects of communication is really, really important in, in treating any humans. Um, the minute that uh, we go into an assessment with a fixed box of tick boxes of things that we've got to achieve is the minute that actually that person is not going to open up and tell us all the things yeah. they need to know. And in pelvic health, you know, they're really, really intimate things. And it can take patients a couple of sessions before they feel comfortable enough with you to tell you what's the problem. You know, I had a, had a gentleman recently sat in front of me who was incredibly embarrassed, partly because I'm not a male, and he wanted to tell me about intimate aspects of his um, his sex life, which were really painful and things that he was worried had caused his pain. He doesn't know that I hear this 17 times a day and it's just a Tuesday for me. Um, to him, it's a massive deal. So we needed to give it the respect. And I knew that he was working up to it. And it took him about two and a half sessions before he said, can I just tell you this um, when he trusted me? So learning those communication skills is key and getting some concept of how you can uh, work with the whole patient so I sell this to patients to, to physios as being well when that patient comes through the door who you can't touch who you can't do anything with and they're the, the kind of they feel super super complex and hard to treat and you don't know where to go and that's the key the key is where you don't know where to go um if you've got in your back pocket loads of skills in really quickly screening and uh, for insomnia for for their depression, anxiety, stress, you have immediately a really simple way in to start working with that person and working out what's important to them and what's hurting them more than just the, the pain. So when someone's been in pain for a long time, more than six to eight weeks, 
these these other processes are vital in identifying and treating so you know getting a getting a 3psq screening someone quickly i will always use the free pack as well because that's what i'm researching the free pack is the free mental pelvic assessment questionnaire looking at sensory motor distortion of the pelvic region i do it with every patient because it saves you time you know if you're treating a what we would think is a very straightforward prolapse and you get x far down the line and they're not changing their symptoms but their pelvic floor is supporting everything and you you've seen a massive change in their pelvic floor but their symptoms aren't changing it's because their symptoms aren't related to the mechanical support their symptoms are related to sensory motor change so you need to address that so having these these um outcome measures in your back pocket to be able to go well you've got you've mentioned that you have scored highly for depression is that a true reflection of how you feel okay would you like some more help with that I have a fantastic colleague I can refer you to. I can send you in the system this way. And while we're waiting for that to come through, I know that actually getting the heart rate up is a really good way of starting to change those symptoms. Is there a way that you'd feel comfortable? Is there something that you, you'd want to do that gets your heart rate? Shall we go and have a play together in the gym? And just giving them suggestions and open. Those kind of skills are key. Carolyn's course is uh, reframing biopsychosocial. I think it is. It's really simple. It's online. You get a couple of domains a week. She goes into the evidence for why they're important to persistent pe pain, not just pelvic pain, and then how to address it in an evidenced way and how to pass, you know, where to send people to and how to deal with it. Those skills are absolutely vital. And then the other one that I'd say that we don't, we don't even begin to look at, but when you get more skills at persistent pain management is how we use our body language. And you've mentioned it already, how we set up our space. So there are lots and lots of subconscious cues that we can give people to make them feel safe and make them more likely to open up to us in clinic. Things like making sure that their chair is closest to the door than your chair, that there's no obstruction in the way of their chair so that um, subconsciously it just gives that fight or flight a relaxation. They can see the door, they know who's going to come in and come out and they can get out there if they need to. Um, using your body language in a way that shows you're excited, you're interested not necessarily excited but you know that you're you're engaged you may not be yeah there's many a time at half seven at night I have completely faked being super excited to see someone because I'm exhausted and I want to go home but if I don't make my face look like I'm interested make that eye contact give them some physical touch if that's appropriate for that person um then the session won't go as well it's not going to be as effective so have there's a really really lovely um TED talk I think it's only 10-15 minutes long with Mark Bowden who is a body language expert um, and he talks about uh, how to stand to show that you're interested you can fake it all it's great but um, certainly it's something that I spent a lot of time setting up my clinical room making sure that I'm not behind a desk so there isn't a power play and I sit alongside the patient um, that uh, you do also lots and lots of safety cues so there's uh, getting some if you're looking at interested in working in pain they're getting some uh training in trauma-informed therapy which can mean many different things and again word pedant here it's um it's it's not a standardized course but uh using concepts around how people with trauma exist and what can help them feel safe to increase the safety level of the treatment that you provide really simple stuff like hi it's really nice to meet you this morning thank you so much for filling out your form we're going to talk for a while if that's okay and then we will discuss if 
we need to do an assessment. And if we do an assessment, I'll tell you all about it before we do it. So they kind of, because, you know, you put them in that room and they're immediately like, oh, God, I'm going to have to take my pants off. Oh, she's going to touch me. Ah. Um, before I do an assessment, I we have a legal obligation to discuss the whole of a, an assessment anyway before you do it. But I go at great pains to discuss everything and put in little bits like physiotherapy never hurts. At no point is this going to hurt you. If it is, you tell me and we stop and we'll find a different way to, to find out things. But we don't have to do this. And um, making it all about collaboration with the patients so that they are in charge about uh, of what you do and when. So the patients that I'm the more complex patients I'm working with at the moment. And again, complex doesn't mean scary. It just means, you know, lots of things going on. Uh, I've got an absolutely brilliant patient who unfortunately has we're, we're working through it, but she's been told by three or four clinicians that she's too hard <laughs> she's too complex to work with so she comes in with that baggage of oh god no one else can help me I, I don't you're the only one that can do it and I'm like I, it's I'm just not yeah it's not about um you being too complex it's just about yeah there's a lot going on but let's just break it down bit by bit let's work on one thing the joy of complexity is you can start anywhere and when she comes into the session she leads the way and I'm very much more with a coaching hat on so that kind of motivational coaching skills are really important and I follow what she wants to do and often she is five miles ahead you know so this is someone that we were working on two or three minutes of sitting and she's gone and done a like an hour and a half walk on the beach and not had a flare I wouldn't have jumped that far <laughs> but she did and she tried it out and then from going from like well arm exercises are safe I'm now going to go and try, um, uh, you know, we're going to do some weights and we're going to do other stuff. And I've tried these stretches. So creating safety in your patients, making sure that they feel safe and using all forms of communication, your body language, as well as um, how you how you communicate with them in sessions are those advanced skills that I would be building. And remembering that you can bring your humanity into clinic. In the NHS, I was um, whenever I rotated, they'd always stick me next to the phone, um, and because I would give patients the phone number <laughs> for the department, because then I've got someone that's like, you know, oh, this horrendous thing happened to them, and they've got a question. I wasn't allowed to email them, wasn't allowed to get emails from patients, so I was like, well, here's the phone. If you need to call me, call me, and I'd get probably one or two phone calls a day from my caseload of 120, 150 patients. Um, and that was fine for me, but everyone else used to say, oh, it's Jilly Hotline. But I didn't want those patients waiting a month to ask me a question and stewing on it and not feeling supported. Most people didn't ring me. So now the equivalent of that is I have an email. I answer it on days that I'm in clinic, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. And the rest of the time I don't, unless it says urgent, then I'll have a look at it. And it means that people feel safe because they've, you know, they've got you as backup. So those are the kind of skills I, I push my mentees to go and go toward. But certainly you uh, you, uh, a good place to start would be something like Carolyn's course on the biopsychosocial elements of it. It breaks it down and makes it less wishy-washy. You've got actual things to use based on scores. And physio is like a plan. <laughs> Those important, essential, I would say, communication skills that encompass actually listening. And even you mentioned body language and listening with your body and eye contact and the room that facilitates, first of all, the environment that the person can feel safe enough to open up and to feel vulnerable. And that vulnerability is so important to hold that space for. Um, so that, that complex interaction between the, the context, the environment, how we listen, and also 
what we say, how we say it, um, and having those screening tools can also be a, a way in for someone to talk about lifestyle, to talk about sleep, to talk about a holistic overview of how they're doing, how they're coping, how they're managing, how the pain is impacting other aspects of their life. Love that, Julie. That's amazing. This has been jam-packed with so many helpful strategies and tools and, and also some up-to-date advice and narratives for our listeners. So really appreciate you sharing and also giving some patient examples. I think if we have real humans in our mind and how it can make a huge influence and impact, it can really help us um, see the, like, the kind of gap between theory and practice can shorten. So appreciate that. And for the listeners who are keen to learn more about you, your courses and your mentorship, where can they find you? Jillybond.com, uh, Jilly with a J, not Gilly the goldfish. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got uh, my online courses are up and running the um, uh, go at your own pace, uh, freely available, covering lots of different bits of bobs. There's one for patients as well that have got pelvic pain. Um, I may be popping up teaching live courses in the UK every now and then, but not much while I'm doing my PhD. And yeah, we will be live with the Pelvic Pain Network um, this autumn. So if you're in the UK and you're interested, we will be providing uh, lots of services for women in with persistent pelvic pain to begin with and mentoring and teaching and learning and education opportunities from clinical academics. So um, we're heavily uh, clinical academic driven project. Cool. And that, that's awesome to get that. Uh, again, there's a silo between academic world and practice world. We need to bridge that gap. So Loving all the work you're doing. Also, I'm going to uh, give a shout out to your YouTube channel. Highly recommend that. So search up Jilly Bond on YouTube for some really helpful, useful, up-to-date, reliable bits of info that you can share amongst colleagues as well as with patients that I've done personally. Jilly, really appreciate your work. Thank you for this chat. Until the next time. Thanks for having me.